Thank you, Emelina. A lot of names there. Not too many hard to pronounce, though. Uh, I, I, I do say Demas. And, and there, there's a story. Um, when I was in seminary, I worked at UPS with a guy who got a dog from a shelter. He just you know, adopted this, this dog. And it was a Doberman, and his name was Demon. And, and, and my friend, you know, he's going to be a pastor. You know, he, I can't own a dog named Demon. You know, come here, Demon, you know. And, and so he renamed him Demas, uh, the, the guy who was in love with the world. So uh, the dog wouldn't be too confused. So uh, anyway, uh, a lot of names there uh, as we come to the end of 2 Timothy. So let's, let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the richness of it. Thank you for these letters from Paul to Timothy that we have studied. And uh, Father, I, I know the heart of Paul for this, this church in Ephesus and this young pastor who was trying to lead it. And uh, all of the issues that we have looked at uh, as we have studied First and Second Timothy. Father, I pray that you would help us to uh, see ourselves in these letters and to see how it is you would have us to live in uh, the church, the, the pillar and foundation of the truth, uh, your uh, son's precious bride. And so I, I pray that you would take these lessons, help us to apply them in our lives as we seek to live in the context of a church that glorifies you for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, we started First uh, Timothy last April, and uh, then we started Second Timothy at the beginning of November. And so here we are at the end of Second Timothy. Uh, a lot of names here as Paul bids farewell in his final letter. Uh, and all of those names, did you notice, are evaluated in light of the kingdom. He evaluates all of those people in light of the kingdom. Some are heroes in light of the kingdom. Uh, heroes whose names we recognize, Titus, Mark, Prisca and Aquila, uh, Onesiphorus. Um, it will be great to meet them one day in heaven. I look forward to sitting down with some of them and talking. I look forward to uh, meeting Titus and hearing about his ministry uh, on the island of Crete. You know, this, this church that had so many issues. Uh, so some are heroes, some are unsung heroes whose names we don't readily recognize. People like Crescens, Antichicus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. I look forward to meeting them in heaven as well. Uh, these are unsung heroes, and I, I just love unsung heroes, people who work faithfully behind the scenes. They are the ones who don't get the headlines. Uh, they're the ones whose names you, you don't see in Hebrews chapter 11, Faith's Hall of Fame. They're the ones who kind of come after the headliners in Hebrews chapter 11. And where it says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. These unsung heroes of whom the world was not worthy. Some listed here in 2 Timothy 4 are villains, Demas and Alexander. We don't expect to see them in heaven. But if we do, they will have a story to tell, a story of grace, a story of repentance, a story of forgiveness, a story of never-ending gratitude to a Savior who sees no one beyond the reach of his ability to save. We have a, a church in our district made up of former villains who would tell you that they ought to be in jail. Uh, men who have been saved by the grace of God, who have no illusions that they deserve to be saved. And they have never gotten over the grace of God that was extended to them. Of all the names in this passage, there is one that stands out. Do you see it? It shows up three times. Once in verse 14, once in verse 17, once in verse 18. And it's the one that makes all the difference. It's the Lord. The Lord. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The old hymn, my hope is in the Lord, says it well. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. Now, before, now for me he stands before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. For me he died. For me, he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. It's all about him. It's all about what he has done and what he will do. Now, think about Paul's situation. He's in the Mamertine prison. He is facing his execution. It's coming soon. He knows it. And Paul looks like the ultimate victim all alone. Deserted, condemned, forsaken, hopeless. But what we find in these verses is the truth that he is not forsaken because the Lord is very much in control. 
The Lord repays, verse 14. The Lord enables, verse 17. The Lord delivers, verse 18. The Lord is sovereign. Job reminds us that the Lord's plans cannot be thwarted. Job 42, verse 2. So, if the Lord is in control, why is Paul in prison? If the Lord is in control, why is Paul awaiting execution? There's another bigger question behind those ones. If the Lord is in control, what part do we play in the events of our lives? If God has already determined outcomes, does it matter what we do? It's a huge question. How do we weigh out our responsibility in light of God's sovereignty? If he more than knows the end from the beginning, if in fact he has written the book that we find ourselves in the middle of, won't he make it all happen anyway, with or without our cooperation? What we're talking about is a question that theologians have wrestled with for centuries, the question of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Two main camps, Calvinists on one side, emphasize the sovereignty of God. Arminians on the other side emphasize the responsibility of humankind. There's an old joke about a Calvinist and an Arminian who both fell down a flight of stairs. The Arminian gets up and dusts himself off and says, well, thank God I'm okay. The Calvinist gets up and dusts himself off and says, Thank God that's over. The difference between those two approaches. And scripture affirms both God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God is sovereign. We are responsible moral agents. Let me share a few passages of scripture where both of those truths appear side by side. One is in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned it all. Jesus had to go to the cross, and you're guilty for putting him there. How about that? God is sovereign. We are responsible. Two chapters later, we find the believers in prayer, and part of their prayer in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28 says this, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of these people, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, peoples of Israel, they, they conspired against Christ and did the very thing God had predestined would take place. God is sovereign. We are responsible. God planned it all. They were guilty. One more, 1 Peter chapter 4, 
I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 8. 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Here it is. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. God is sovereign. We are responsible. God destined them to stumble. They're guilty for stumbling. In each of those passages, we see God as absolutely in control. We see people doing what God planned in advance for them to do. Not just God knowing what they would do, but God planning what they would do. And in each of those, we see people held accountable for their actions. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Scripture affirms both truths. Now, people have weighed those two truths out differently over time. Some put so much weight on the sovereignty side that... uh, People on the responsibility side say we look like puppets on a string. Others put so much weight on the responsibility side that that people on the sovereignty side say they dishonor God, making him look small and helpless. But understanding that we are responsible moral agents doesn't diminish God's sovereignty. He is still in control. And trusting in God's sovereignty doesn't mean we are fatalists. It does matter what we do. We do our work knowing that we're serving his purposes, knowing he's in control, knowing the results are in his hands, but we still do our work. I made the point. A few weeks ago, when we were looking at chapter 2, where Paul spoke of the elect, I made the point then that the elect are elect, but they still need to be reached. Remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul wanted to go to Asia, but God prevented him from going to Asia. Then he wanted to go to Bithynia to preach, and God prevented him from going to Bithynia. And then in the night, God gave Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. The elect in Macedonia still needed to hear the message of the gospel that would save them, and Paul would bring it. So we're not fatalists. We work because we are responsible moral agents, and we trust because God is sovereign. So I'd like in the rest of our time together to look at three places in this passage, these three places we we mentioned, where the Lord is spoken of and see those two truths playing out. The first is verse 14, where we see the Lord is judge. 
verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord is judge. We don't want to see evil triumph. We work against it. We do all we can to work against it. And ultimately, we know that God is judge. In fact, just in the preceding section in verse 8, Paul reminds us that the Lord is the righteous judge. And here he speaks about the Lord judging Alexander the coppersmith. I wonder what things Paul did to try to correct Alexander the coppersmith. We see him mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Evidently, he was once an elder in the church at Ephesus. And he went astray somehow. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he made shipwreck of his faith. There had to have been attempts to bring him back from the course that he was taking. Jesus lays several steps out in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. When your brother sins, you go to him one on one and explain the situation to him. You, you lay that out to him. And if he won't listen to you, then you go back to him with one or two others. You bring a couple others along. And if he won't listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to even the church, then you treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. And from that Tell it to the church, I take it to mean, make one last appeal. Is there anybody here that can get through to this guy? And then Jesus says, and if he doesn't listen, even to the church, then this is how you treat him. I think Paul came to that point. Uh, Paul ultimately says he had to hand him over to Satan. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. He handed him over to Satan to let him experience the consequences of the decisions that he had made. And here in 2 Timothy, we see Paul speaking of this same man again. He says, he did Paul a great deal of harm, and now he warns Timothy about him. In verse 15, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. We don't want evil to triumph. In fact, we do all that we can to oppose it. I came to a, a point in my life where I, I had a really tough decision to make. And the decision was whether or not I could actually serve in the military. I really wondered if I were put into a combat situation, could I take another life? Could I seal somebody's destiny? And so uh, I was enrolled in ROTC as a freshman and wrestling with that question the whole year long. And finally, at the end of the year, there was a, a banquet for ROTC and the president of the college spoke. And in his speech, he quoted Edmund Burke, who said, if all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, and he challenged us to bring the presence of Christ into the military, to see this as a mission field, and to go 
in his name. And yet, as we oppose evil, we need to be careful that we are doing it according to God's word. And we ultimately trust that God will bring about justice in the end. And we may not see the justice we want in our lifetime. Paul knew as his life was ending that Alexander was still on the loose, was still making trouble. But he also knew that God would deal with him. Paul had given it his best shot. And he could now leave it in God's hands because God is judge. And he will ultimately set everything straight. And even evildoers ultimately serve his purposes. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. In Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The Lord is judge. Second place we see the Lord's name appear is verse 17, where we see the Lord is enabler. The Lord is enabler. Verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord is enabler. We carry out our mission as God opens doors for us. And we see Paul stepping through those doors throughout the book of Acts as God opens them. In Acts 16, we saw he closed the door for Paul to go into Asia. He closed the door for Paul to go into Bithynia. But he opened this door to go into Macedonia, and Paul recognized it and walked through it. And because he did, he was able to preach the gospel in Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea, and Athens. And then we see God bringing Paul to Jerusalem in, verse, in, in Acts chapter 21 where Paul is arrested, but ultimately gets the opportunity to preach the gospel to this angry mob. Acts 21. And then in Acts 23, we see Paul taken to Caesarea, where he gets the opportunity to preach the gospel to the governor, Felix. Felix wants a bribe from Paul, and Paul doesn't give it, so Felix puts him in jail for two years. Can you imagine it? Christianity's leading spokesman sidelined for two whole years, but God is still in control. And after two years, Felix gets succeeded by Festus as governor, who ultimately gives Paul an audience before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And Paul gets the opportunity to preach the gospel to him. Then he gets sent to Rome, another open door, and preaches the gospel there, Acts chapter 28. So that by the time we get to the end of the book of Philippians that Paul wrote while he was in jail in Rome, we see Paul sending greetings from all the believers in Caesar's household. 
Isn't that the most amazing thing? All the believers in Caesar's household send you greeting. How'd that happen? Because God opened a door for Paul and he stepped through it. It would seem that Paul was released from his house arrest in Rome, traveled again, got re-arrested and brought back to Rome, this time put into the Mamertine prison where we see him in 2 Timothy. But even there, he sees an opportunity to preach the gospel at his trial, verses 16 and 17, so that all the Gentiles, he says, might hear it. These were all doors opened by God in his sovereignty. And Paul, in his responsibility, stepped through them. And as he did, God enabled him, giving him what he needed each time. Now, didn't Jesus say he'd do that? Didn't Jesus say he'd do that? Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. God opened doors. Paul walked through them. God enabled him. I wonder how many doors like that he opens for us. My guess far more than we step through. Yet when we do, we find that he equips us. He gives us opportunities. He enables us as we step up and seize those opportunities, leaving the results in his hand, knowing that he is sovereign. The Lord is our enabler. The third place we see the Lord's name mentioned is verse 18 where we find the Lord is deliverer. He is judge, he is enabler, he is deliverer. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. We do what we can for the cause of Christ, knowing the Lord is judge. We step through the doors he opens for us, knowing the Lord is our enabler. And when our task is done, we trust him to bring us home, knowing that he is our deliverer. Paul was rescued, he says in verse 17, from the lion's mouth. Maybe what he's saying there is that he was delivered from going to the lions in the Colosseum, as other Christians had been, because he was a Roman citizen. It might be that he was speaking of other dangers in a more figurative way by speaking of the lion's mouth. But he was under no illusion that he wouldn't be put to death. He knew that was coming. So what's he mean when he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed? Isn't his execution evil? Paul understands that the governing authorities are instituted by God and do not bear the sword in vain. We heard that in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, read earlier. 
He saw Rome's right to execute him as legitimate. And he knew that the Lord would use it to bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Literally, to save me into his heavenly kingdom. We don't need to cling to this life. We're given this life in order to serve God with the gifts and abilities he's given us until the day he calls us home. Augustine said, we are immortal until our work is done. The time of our death isn't determined by anyone or anything here on earth, not by doctors, not by actuarial tables, not by the average lifespan of a man or a woman. That decision is made in the councils of heaven. And when we have done all that God has in mind for us to do, then and only then, he will take us home, and not one minute before. This life we see here in the Apostle Paul is a Christ-centered life. One that can say, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. One that can serve God wholeheartedly, courageously, knowing that our times are in his hands. There's a great hymn that's been out for a few years called Untitled Hymn. I suppose that's a title. That's what it's called. Here's the final verse. After it walks through a number of things in life, it says, and with your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye. Then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. Fly to Jesus and live. The Lord is our deliverer. The Lord is judge, and so we do all we can for the cause of Christ, and we leave the results in his hands. The Lord is our enabler, so we step through the doors that he's opened for us and serve him with our whole heart. And again, we leave the results in his hands. And the Lord is our deliverer, and so we serve him boldly and courageously and fearlessly, knowing that he will deliver us safely home when our task is done. John Wesley put it this way, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can. To all the people you can, as long as ever you can. And all of this is possible because God is sovereign. And yet his sovereignty doesn't diminish our responsibility. He is sovereign. We are responsible. So let me close by just asking you a couple questions. First, have you trusted in him? Have you put your faith, your trust in him. He is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he has brought you to this moment, and in your responsibility, you need to decide, if you haven't already, have you put your faith, your trust in Christ alone, in the one who died to reconcile you to the Father 
He is the judge of the living and the dead. Are you ready to stand before the judge? Choose to put your trust in him today. Not only is he judge, he is also our enabler. So are you stepping through the doors he's opening for you? I have no doubt that he has opened far more doors for me than I have stepped through. If Paul were watching me, he'd say, there's another one. Come on, are you going to step through it? God will enable you as you do. Are you stepping through the doors that he opens? He's our judge, he's our enabler, he's also our deliverer. And this deliverance doesn't always mean that we'll get out of our situation alive. It does mean that he has a place prepared for us and he will take us safely there. So are you serving him boldly, knowing that you are immortal until your task is done? And knowing that when it is, he will bring you safely home. Paul's life was a Christ-centered life. It's all about Jesus and our response to him. Let's bow in prayer. Jesus, it's all about you. Let our lives be all about you. Let us reflect you in the life that you have called us to lead very ordinary lives, but lives that can give glory to you as we yield ourselves to your control and as we live by your power, trusting in you. And I pray that if there is someone here today that hasn't put their trust in you at this moment, I pray that one would just look to you right now and call out to you and say, would you forgive me based on what you did on the cross for me? I put my trust in you. I can't save myself. I know I'm too much of a wreck. I need you. And so come into my heart today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives for you, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.